The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. So welcome again, everyone, and uh, it's good to see some old friends and new friends and just to be here this morning and um, share um, our practice together. Uh, so as most of you know, Mark is um, guiding a retreat um, at IMS, and some of us are holding down the fort. So I'm grateful to be here. And I'm um, a longtime member of the center and Dharma community, and I've been um, practicing and teaching mindfulness in the community and in my practice as a psychotherapist. So I'm glad to be here this morning. So um, I thought that this morning I would talk about a topic that I think is um, hopefully very alive for us, risking real practice, risking real practice, discernment, peacemaking, and practical wisdom. I'd also like to um, give this talk a little bit of a humorous subtitle that um, you'll, you'll find out what the connection is later. Hopefully, I'll get to it. Um, Velveeta Free Mind. <laughs> Velveeta Free Mind or Velveeta Free Practice. So um, when uh, the Buddha, the Buddha had a son, as we know, and when his mother urged him to go to the Buddha for his inheritance instead of being inheriting, being the king of a great kingdom, he inherited the robes and the alms bowl, and he, became, he joined the sangha of um, renunciates. And when Rahula was seven, as many kids do, he lied. I don't know if they say exactly what he lied about, but he lied about something, and the Buddha However small it was and however young he was, the Buddha did not let that go on, um, on, used it as a teachable moment. So he said to him, to young Rahula, whenever engaging in physical, verbal, or mental activity, you should reflect, will this activity bring harm to myself or others? If on reflecting you realize it will bring, bring harm, then such activity is unfit for you to do. If you realize that it will bring benefit to you or others, then it is something fit for you to do. And then later, at age eight, he, um, he offered some other teachings to him. And, uh, and then, um, I'm not sure the exact timing of it, and then again when he was a young teen at 14 or 15. And he... Um, Rahula had asked his father to teach him um, some breath meditation. And then before actually teaching him the breath meditation, the Buddha told his son to meditate on loving kindness as an antidote to ill will, on compassion to overcome cruelty, on sympathetic joy to master discontent, and on equanimity to subdue aversion. So just like we chanted the divine abidings. So at age eight, he gave him the teachings about um, this teaching. Develop meditation that is like the earth, 
as the earth is not troubled by agreeable or disagreeable things, it comes into contact with, or if you meditate like earth, agreeable and disagreeable experiences will not trouble you. Develop meditation like water, like fire, like air, and like space, as all these are not troubled by agreeable and disagreeable things. They come into contact with. So if you meditate like water, fire, air, or space, agreeable and disagreeable experiences will not trouble you. So um, I don't know if any of you have heard of um, Ajahn Brahm, but uh, Ajahn Brahm wrote a wonderful little um, booklet or book called Who Ordered This Truckload of Dung? (laughs) It's quite delightful, and I encourage you to Google it. And, you know, when we get down to risking real practice, we're going to be dealing with the truckloads of dung. That's just how it is. So that's where being able to sit, as we did a little bit this morning, with the body, with the sensation, with the emotions, to just be with it, and to also be able to offer what the Buddha taught Rahula, the, the um, equanimity, the loving kindness, the compassion, the, the, the gladness, to be able to be with, you know, when we lie, when we, when we step in it, you know, when we don't feel so good. Um, I know um, I got really mad at my husband last night, and so I had to do a little self-forgiveness this morning. So um, an emperor, after much study, found that he only needed to ask three questions to receive all the wide guidance he needed. This is from Ajahn Brahm. So here's the three questions. When, and see if you can answer these for yourself. When is the most important time? When is the most important time? Does anyone want to take a guess? Now. Yay, you're a good test taker. (laughs) Now. Good one. Who... Who is the most important person? Who is the... Yes. Yes. All right. That's the one that I'm with. The one that I'm with. And that could include yourself. Whoever you're with is the most important person. So whoever you're with, whoever comes before you. And what is the most important thing to do? The most important thing to do. Okay, that's a good one. What he says is that it's to care. And he describes that as bringing together being careful and caring. And it illustrates that where we're coming from is what's most important. So what's that attitude or that intention that we're bringing? Are we coming from care? Are we coming from kindness? And then he asks us, that um, when you're the only one around, you're the most important person you're with. And do you ever say to yourself, good morning, me, have a nice day. (laughs) Especially when the next truckload of dung is delivered. (laughs) So I'd like to give a couple examples um, that... um, Where, how do we meet the moment, and what does our practice look like? And knowing that there isn't a right way to practice, 
that one of the things that often we look for is some, and, and um, um, Tanisaro Bhikkhu says one of the worst things that we can do is to look to some ajahn or some teacher to tell us how to do it. You do this, X, 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 and then you'll get enlightened. So we often are looking. It's helpful to read books. It's helpful to listen to talks. It's helpful to do all the things that we do and come together. But ultimately, we have to become our own teacher. Nobody else can teach us how to train these minds. No one else has this particular set of conditions and minds. The Buddha himself said we need to see and look for ourselves. So we have to develop this capacity of discernment and to really be honest with ourselves and to really risk really practicing. Like I can try out other ways that my teachers tell me, but usually what do good teachers do? I know mine have always said, um, you know, look how you're going to balance your own mind. Go a little to the right, a little to the left. But they leave you on your own a lot, <laughs> you know. They don't tell you exactly, you know, we, we, we want to follow precepts. Well, how am I integrating that into my life? How am I really sitting with the difficulties that arise? You know, they give us guidelines and suggestions and some skillful means, and then we have to dig in and actually do the practice. So um, I was very um, recently, um, my son very recently went on a trip to, um, to Israel um, right as the Gaza War, which is continuing to go on, and it's horrendous, ongoing, diluted hatred, you know, dec- you know, centuries from the beginning of time type of human suffering that we, we can get caught in, um, was going on. And I was extremely um, anxious, as you can imagine. Um, and um, I was um, saying some pretty unskillful things to my friends and in my own mind. I was really questioning the wisdom of having tourists come at a time when there's a war and cities are being bombed by missiles or being attacked by missiles, even if they can intercept most of them. So um, basically, um, the day he landed, the day after, um, was the day that, for a time, that the um, flights were canceled. The FAA said no flights. So... Um, he was on an organized trip, and the organizers from that trip that morning at 7.30 in the morning went through the list, and they called all of the family members. So even though my son is, a, is an adult, they called all the, the, the people that were on their list. So I really appreciated that. And um, I think I was something like the 20th call that morning because um, she said she had five more calls to make, and there are about 25 people in their trip. So um, this woman from Israel gets on the phone with me, you know, this rageful mother, and um, I'm just practicing, risking real practice. I'm like, okay, breathing, Dropping into my heart, can I be present with this? Can I be with compassion? Can I have equanimity? Can I respond to this human being that is making an effort to call to comfort me, even though I want to tell her whatever I think? So 
and I had shot off an email um, as well. So she said many people had called and were sending emails. So she's on the phone with me, and she launches into her spiel, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da, and we are doing this, and we do this, and we check this, and we make sure the road's in there, and da-da. And I'm thinking, this is nuts. Um, why do you have to go through all these things to keep these people safe? I mean, like, this is making me feel better. <laughs> so, so then... Um, I'm listening to her, and I did make a couple comments, but I didn't do it from the place of, you know, with the, with the eyes of rage. I tried to just say, well, you know, this doesn't really make sense to me because I understand how you guys need to live and go on with your lives, but I really don't understand. And I want to know that these young people have a choice. Do they, did you give them a choice? Can they actually choose to come back if they wanted to. And I just started asking some questions. And then after about five minutes or so, we actually had a real genuine conversation. And she said to me, you know, she said, I'm actually originally from Chicago. <laughs> and I have a Jewish mother, too. <laughs> And she's been calling me, because I live in Tel Aviv, and there have been missiles. It is pretty surreal, she said, where you're, you know, once or twice a day, the sirens go off, and you have to take shelter. I'm originally from Chicago, too. And I just said, I said, thank you. Thank you. And then I hung up the phone, and I felt such a compassion. You know, we are in it together, you know. This Israeli woman, you know, her ideology, mine, you know, coming together um, and, and then meeting at the heart. And I thought, you know, for me, this is real practice. This is where the rubber meets the road. And then yesterday, I don't know if any of you heard it, but um, there's a man in Coffee County, Tennessee, a Muslim man, and I don't know if I'll say his name correctly. His name is Zach Mahuyudin. And he was running for county commissioner's seat in his town. He actually was born in Bangladesh, raised in Pakistan, and he came to the U.S. to Tennessee in the 70s when he was 18 years old, and he's 58 years old now. And uh, he was running in Tennessee and uh, one of his opponents accused him of something like wanting to get rid of Bibles and burn flags. And then another man named Barry West, who was the current elected commissioner at the time, posted on his Facebook page, which went viral, a picture of a double-barreled shotgun held by a man with his eyes closed. And I hate to even repeat what it said, but it said, how to wink at a Muslim. And that he believed that all Muslims were terrorists. And what did Mahuyudin do? He called the man up. He called Barry West up. And he asked him over for dinner. And Barry West, surprised, went over with his son to Muyudin's home 
for dinner. And they had a real conversation. And he said that he was sorry for the hurt that he had caused. And that he um, didn't realize, because all his experience was, was what was in the media since 9-11. And that he had never really met a Muslim on that level, in his family, in his home. And so he made peace. He made peace. Last week, um, some friends, some yoga students of my husband's, gave us McCartney tickets. And we were in the Target Stadium and uh, with almost 40,000 people. And at one point, when he was playing one of the beautiful songs like Hey Jude, all the cell phones were up with the lights. <laughs> And I was sitting there, and or standing there, I was standing for half the concert. This well of metta just filled the stadium. It was just extraordinary. And I've never been to a concert at that level in that big of a space. And to feel there was so much mudita, there was so much joy. People were happy, they were dancing and singing, and nobody was really super stoned or whacked out, you know. They, they were mostly, you know, gray-haired, you know, half the audience, and then, you know, it, it just wasn't that energy of the 70s. And, and they were just, it was just such a full experience, and I was so grateful to this practice, you know, of the time that we spent on the cushion, sitting with the truckload of dung, sitting with all of that, and then being able to feel the hearts be that open, and, and also how available that could be. And riding back on the train that night, it was so beautiful. People were, we were packed in like this, and there were lines and lines, and people were just laughing and talking, and it didn't feel like your purse was going to be ripped off, you know. It was just wonderful. So um, Rumi says to us, we can be a community of spirit. There is a community of spirit. Join it. Feel the delight of walking in the noisy street and being the noise. Drink all your passion and be a disgrace. Close both eyes to see with the other eye. Open your hands if you want to be held. Sit down in the circle. Quit acting like a wolf and feel the shepherd's love filling you. At night... Your beloved wanders. Don't accept consolations. Why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Move outside the tangle of fear thinking. Live in silence. Flow down, down in always widening rings of being. Flow down, down in always widening rings of being. Tanisaro Bhikkhu says there's a Thai term. This is on a, a teaching of his called What's Not on the Map and how we need to go into our practice. It's not a, a map territory. You know, like when you get a map, it's all organized and everything's in order, right? And then when you get in the real forest, and where's the lines? You know, there's real animals. There's real, real mosquitoes. There's real bear, right? 
So um, he says that there's a term in, in Thai called arahan dib, a raw arahant, an uncooked arahant, meaning someone who's read up on all the texts, has everything all figured out beforehand, and then forces his meditation into the mold that he's learned from the text. And when he reaches the end of his preconceived notions about where the practice leads, there he is, success in the practice. The raw arahant is not a term of admiration. (laughs) It's a term of derision of an inexperienced person who thinks you can have it all figured out beforehand, not a body of facts you can simply memorize. So we we have to really do that actual practice is something that you have to learn to feel your way through, that getting that right feel for practice is the essence of mastery and basic principles that apply to everyone. But no one has ever had your particular mind, as I said earlier. So try to work with your best intentions. And here's a couple of pointers. The the Buddha teaches you how to deal with the discovery of mistaken anticipations and to recognize it and to learn when you're off track and to stop. Okay, so this requires, one, honesty and integrity, right? A willingness to confess or own up your mistakes and talk them over with someone a lot further along the path. So you go and you, you have your mentors, you have your teachers, you have your Dharma brothers and sisters, and you say, hey, you know what? I'm struggling with this. You open that vulnerability. You don't paste on, I've read all the texts, I'm, I'm, I'm Arahant Dib. You really let yourself, um, you know, get that help. You're honest with yourself. So, and, and then, the, so those are the three steps, honesty and integrity, willingness to own it up, and then to ask other people, and to be above board, to be open. And then he says you develop good habits this way. You develop external habits of speaking that become part of your internal dialogue, that your practice is a combination of learning what you've picked up and taking it to heart, and that you've got to test it, right? Things don't always come out the way we want, and you want real insight, okay? You can make, you can read maps, make plans, study the Dharma, but then in, when you're really out there in the forest, when you're really there on the phone call, you're really there in the world, then you test it out. And then you have to be willing to throw it out at the drop of a hat, right? And freshen up and just really respond in the moment. And that's how we get real insight. So now I'm going to finish, try to get to the Velveeta here soon. <laughs> so... But before I do that, there's a couple other um, wisdoms I'd like to share here from the teachings. So as we throw our plans overboard and we meet up with the new and unexpected things, and that how we deal with the unexpected, okay? And then we need to be able to batten down for the long haul, that when they train people in, in the Army, they actually have them run with these huge backpacks on, and they tell them they're only going to go a mile, but then they go another mile or maybe more. And they say that when you are out in the battlefield, when you're out in the Dharma, when you're out in the world, you have to be prepared to go further than you ever thought you could go, right? Because it's unexpected, you know? It's very unexpected. I wasn't expecting my son to be going to Israel in the middle of a war. 
you know, I, you know, how did, how do you be with those things? Um, and then the same holds true for the battle with the defilements. You can never tell when greed and hatred are going to come up, or for how long, or when they're going to come back. I've, I can't tell you how many times I've had clients or students in the meditation classes, and they say, "Well." Well, when am I going to be done with this? Or I should be further along, or I shouldn't still be getting this angry. When I was getting angry last night over something ridiculous, it was like, whoa, you know. Well, there's those defilements again, and you never know. It can be quiet for weeks and months on end, and then it comes back full strength. And you have to be prepared. So learning to deal with uncertainties is important. And this builds a right attitude and confidence and the powers of observation. Ajahn Mahabua says that defilements are named in books and they come in neat little lists. But when they come up in your mind, they don't come up in a neat list. They don't come up in the order. They come up all pell-mell. And now I'll ask you the question. Luang Pudang says, Dune says, which defilement do you deal with first? Whichever one arises. They don't not line up neatly. It's good to have names for them, but you know, a lot, you have to be prepared for these things. Ajahn Lee says that the ways of the mind are so many that no book on earth could possibly cover them all, and that you can learn from certain basic patterns. So, what about Velveeta? So, now where is the Velveeta? I, I built up to it. So, so he basically says that, um, oh, one more from Ajahn Mahabua. He says that if discernment doesn't arise until you, discernment doesn't arise until you find yourself cornered at the end of your rope. And that he said, then, um, Tanisaro Bhikkhu says that otherwise your practice is like processed cheese. No matter what kind of cheese goes into the factory, it all gets mixed with oil and it comes out tasting the same. Velveeta has not changed much. It is very predictable, all very blah. But we don't want processed cheese in the practice. We don't want blah insights. We don't want blah insights. Any practice that requires less than your full participation and less than your full willingness to put things, you know, on the line, it's never going to offer you any real surprises. Awakening is quite a surprise, he says, when it comes. Learn how to deal with the little surprises, and the big surprises will have an opportunity to show you that there really is something special in life. Buddha says there are four noble truths. It's not that all life is suffering. Part of life is also the end of suffering. If you open yourself up to what often might seem impossibilities, The Buddha says we practice to see what we've never seen before, to attain what we've never attained before, to know what we have never known before, to be willing to do things we've never done, to encounter things never planned, and learn to enjoy that adventurous aspect of the path. It's crucial. Practice as an adventure. So we're all adventurers, and that's how we gain mastery. And then we can become, we can, we can make peace with ourselves and we can discern. Mark Nepo says that um, 
he quotes um, Antonio Machado's beautiful poem about making honey from our errors. And he invites us to take that every time we fall down is another opportunity to transform that learning into wisdom, right? If we don't make mistakes, if we don't, like Rahula, you know, get, get in, um, admonished by the Buddha, <laughs> you know, and get the teachings and go for the Dharma, we're not going to grow. So rather than getting mad at ourselves for not being perfect, the real practice is to say, wow, that the learning is all part of it. That's the adventure. I'd like to close with just a short um, little part of a poem by Denise Levertoff called Making Peace. And then we have a few minutes for some discussion. Making Peace. A voice from the dark called out. The poets must give us imagination of peace to outs the intense, familiar imagination of disaster. Peace, not only the absence of war, but peace like a poem is not there ahead of itself, can't be imagined before it is made, can't be known except in the words of its making. Grammar of justice, syntax of mutual aid. A feeling toward it, dimly sensing a rhythm, is all we have until we begin to utter its metaphors, learning to speak them. A line of peace might appear if we restructured the sentence of our lives, if we restructured the sentence our lives are making, reinvoked its reaffirmation of profit and power, questioned our needs, allowed long pauses. A cadence of peace might balance its weight on the different fulcrum, peace, a presence, an energy field more intense than war, might pulse then, stanza by stanza, into the world, each act of living, one of its words, each words, a vibration of light, facets of the forming crystal. A cadence of peace, peace, a presence, an energy field more intense than war. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you, everyone, and we have uh, just a few minutes for um, a couple of questions or comments from your experience, and then we'll have our uh, announcements. Yes, for yeah. yeah. I sorry, just wanted sorry. to say how grateful I was for you in the talk today because hearing someone who has practiced and teaches like you do still getting into you know the. the Still. 
Oh, well, you know what I'm saying. It's like, I, I want myself to, like, you know, when I get, I, like, I think I've accomplished, accomplished something. <laughs> and all of a sudden it's like, oh, they're showing up again. And it's like, and then we're going to get past this. Well, it's not necessarily worrying about whether I get past it, it's whether or not I see it rising and what I do with it when it yes. rises. And so that's what I thank you for bringing insight to me today mm-hmm. for that. Thank you. Thank you. That's our real practice. Yeah. Yes. He had a wonderful experience, and he was actually, I think, a little um, embarrassed that that what I wrote. He read that email. <laughs> he said. I, but I said to him, we had a, we had a he's, he, he really had a wonderful time, and he felt perfectly, he was perfectly safe and out of harm's way the whole time, and they had some wonderful discussions. But um, I said, well, you know, imagine I was there, and they cut off um, airline service from the States. You'd probably be stressed, too. He said, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, yes, he's fine. Yeah. I have a question. So you talked about like when we make a mistake, we can use that as a chance to grow. Yeah, make a mistake, a chance to grow. Yes. So I have a question. What if you've done that and you know, you're processing all of these things and you think you're kind of growing, but then there's part of you that just wants to keep making the same mistake? Part of us that wants to keep making the same mistake. Can we relate to that? <laughs> when you get over that, it's like you know everything tells you don't do that again. Right. Right. So so when you have when you find yourself going there, and I think, you know, we have these habitual patterns, right? And they've been there a long time, you know. So if I'm stressed out, I might reach for that pint of ice cream, right? Or um, I might say or do something. And so I think the, the process is we become aware. We have compassion for the conditioning. You know, and we know it's a habit. And we have the intention. And I think as soon as we forgive ourselves, and they say, and I think it's really true, and you can ch- chime in, don't you think that you become aware of it? You compassion. You see yourself go down the same path. There's a wonderful reading, Google it, called The Hole in the Sidewalk where you keep falling in, you fall in the hole, you know, and then you go, oh, why did this happen to me? Then you, be, then you start to take responsibility for it, which was actually another one of the teachings. You take responsibility for it. You recognize it, and you have the intention. Then you fall in again, and you fall in. And, and, then, and then eventually you catch it. You get out quicker. You forgive yourself. You begin again. And then eventually you, you go down it less often, and you take another street. So I think to just have compassion and to get more support. I think it's helpful to get support, to talk to a team, maybe have a teacher or somebody to help us. I mean, we all have these patterns, and, um, and it takes time and patience. And it is that experience that's part of our real practice. I don't know anyone, I don't know anyone that hasn't struggled. So thank you. Good question. Yes, last one. I would just add to, add to that, that something very interesting this past weekend about Buddhist ethics where when they compare, you know, if I do something and I don't know any better and I make a mistake versus when I you know, make the mistake and I know better, it's actually better in that second one. You know, in America, mm-hmm. it's usually the opposite. If you, if you 
do better and you made a mistake anyways, it's like, shame on you, you should, you should right. do right. But from the Buddhist perspective, in terms of ethics, it's like, and, you know, you're, you understand what you should be doing, and you're along, you're along the path to learning that lesson for real, which is better than just being completely ignorant of it. Absolutely. Yes, Mary? To just add, too, I think that my experience with um, uh, faithful sitting practices has enabled me to pause and slowly as I see more. And so not only um, slowly, 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 more often, not always, seeing the path I might go down, but to actually choose not to go down is coming from sitting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just saying, it will pass. Pass. I don't need to have that drink, or I don't need to have that yes. ice cream, or I don't need to lash out and be angry at my husband. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. And sitting really helps that abiding with it and being uncomfortable and wanting to do it, but not doing it. Yeah, that, I thank you for that, that pause. And, and what I noticed last night is that I didn't hang on to it. It's like it, it came up, I apologized, even though. That I didn't want to. I just said, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, I did pretty quickly. I said, I'm sorry. That wasn't okay. And, and then he apologized and we moved on, you know, but it was like, you know, it's, it's that being able to pause to recognize it. And sometimes you can often catch it or just that's where that body sensation is so powerful because you can watch the sensation. So we need to finish up, thank you, and, and, you know, talk to one another, ask each other. You know, we have a wonderful sangha here. People are all practicing really hard. There's so much wisdom and so much great real practice. This is not a Velveeta sangha. <laughs> so so, so ha- you're having the real, in- we're having all the real insights. So thank you. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.